Hello, everyone. This is Devin Thorpe. Uh, I'm a Forbes contributor, and I write the Social Entrepreneur blog. I am extraordinarily just crazy excited today to have with us one of the most magnificent, accomplished, recognized, rewarded inventors, entrepreneurs, and now social entrepreneurs in the world. We have with us today Dean Kamen, the uh, probably most well-known for the Segway, but, but uh, Dean Kamen, founder of DECA Research, has done a has over 500 patents and is an incredible uh, entrepreneur and investor uh, and inventor. So, Dean, thank you very much for being with us today. It's always good to be with people that can help us spread the message about first kids, technology, and solving some of the world's problems through technology. Well, we're ex we're extraordinarily grateful that you would take the time to uh, to be with us today. You were just given a, a really significant award from the Tech Museum in San Jose. They recognized you as the James C. Morgan Global Humanitarian. That's quite an honor. Yes, it sure was. And it was particularly, uh, I guess, neat, fun, uh, rewarding because it's the who's who of the world of innovation. It's people from some of the companies that have already and will soon uh, transform the world in many ways. I mean, Silicon Valley is the birthplace of a whole lot of companies that are doing great things, and a lot of them were there to help celebrate uh, what technology can do for the world. Well, it, uh, I congratulate you on the award, and I'm grateful that uh, they've recognized you for your for your great work. I understand that you're working on two big projects that have real impact potentially on the climate, on the developing world, and I'd like to just learn a little bit more about each of these. One is your work with the Stirling engine, and the other is your work with what you call the slingshot, a water purification system. What can you tell us about these projects? <coughs> Well, each one of them is a box about the size of a maybe a washing machine or some home appliance. Each one is made to be uh, small enough that it can be carried in the back of a truck or by a few people uh, pretty much anywhere in the world. Each one of them is large enough in what its capacity is to be meaningful. The water machine, slingshot, can make about a thousand liters, 250 gallons of pure water every day, enough to give health and life to about a hundred people per machine. And the Sterling uh, electric generator can produce about 10 kilowatts, 10,000 watts, which is enough power, again, for a village of about a hundred people to all have access, if prudently used, to electricity. We're not going to be running jacuzzis and air conditioning for 100 people, but with a 10 kilowatt machine, everybody can have computing capability, communications capability, LED lighting, uh, access to the internet, and the basic needs that the modern world uh, expects uh, that you have if you're going to be you know, part of a 
growing society that 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 can pull itself out of poverty and ignorance into an educated, productive uh, part of uh, life. When we're talking about this Stirling engine, what does it use for fuel, and and how is is this a clean energy uh, use, or or is this uh, are we burning fossil fuels? So what's really neat about our Stirling is, unlike most heat engines, uh, all of the fuel is burned, if you use fuel at all, external to the engine. It's an external combustion engine when using fuel, but basically, unlike our Rankin cycle or a diesel cycle or a spark ignition auto cycle engine, um, the Stirling works by keeping one end of a closed system hot and the other end of that same closed system cold and internally cycling the working fluid up and back between those two spaces, and in doing so, raising and lowering in a cyclic manner the internal pressure. And as the pressure comes down, uh, you uh, let the cycle uh, move the pistons in such a way uh, that it doesn't take much work to put them at the hot end. And then when the pressure goes up, you let the high pressure a gas do the work of pushing them and the difference between those two amounts of work in the cycle comes out as net output and we internally create uh, electricity out of that uh, net energy uh, so the long and the short of it is any source of heat including you know uh, solar panels or reflectors uh, can make it work you can use fossil fuels if you do, you still get a much cleaner burn than a typical internal combustion engine because it's a continuous burn like your kitchen stove, not like the explosions that happen uh, inside an engine where you may or may not get uh, a complete burn and you make certain kinds of bad byproducts. But in our particular case, we designed this engine to be uh, small enough, both in physical size and output, that its real application is, for instance, to go to villages around the world and take waste products like cow dung. And in two villages in Bangladesh, uh, we had uh, the village uh, do nothing more than collect their cow dung, put it in a pit about a meter by a meter by a meter cubic pit next to where this engine is sitting. And with nothing more than the normal, uh, natural, biodegradation of this cow dung by which, as we all know what it smells like, uh, methane coming off the cow dung is captured, put into a combustor to keep the hot end of this engine hot, and so the engine ran for literally six months on nothing but the methane coming off a pit full of cow dung, and I'd point out it's not only not bad for the environment to burn that methane, but if you, instead of burning it, let it escape into the atmosphere, methane, CH4, which is lighter than the rest of our atmosphere, would expand and uh, it would go up into the atmosphere where it's 21 times as bad for the environment as carbon dioxide. And it eventually degrades. The CH4 eventually degrades to carbon dioxide and water anyway. But if we collect it early and use it as our fuel, uh, we get electricity out of it. We prevent it from being this very bad uh, greenhouse gas, methane, up in the atmosphere and turn it immediately back into the CO2 it would become anyway without burning any new fossil fuel. Amazing, amazing. Well, let's talk about the, the slingshot. Uh, I, if I understand correctly, you can take water that's pretty, pretty gross 
and make it drinkable. Am I understanding correctly how you work this, and, and how does it do that? Yeah, your understanding is, is graphic but accurate. <laughs> uh, we can take the grossest water you'll ever see. We can take water out of a latrine or out of a chemical waste site, uh, as well as you know, out of the ocean where there's nothing but salt. We can take any input water, and basically what the machine does is instead of using, for instance, an osmosis membrane, which is what you'd use for salt water, or instead of adding chlorine to kill bio-burden if you were using water that had Girardia or Cryptosporidia or bio-burden in it, or instead of using activated charcoal if you're pulling out arsenic or hexvalent chrome like you see in millions of wells in Asia, we do what nature does. We just say, bring the water into this machine, essentially boil it, distill it, let the pure distilled water come off as vapor, and then return the rest of it to where you got it. Now the problem, of course, with distilling water is it takes an enormous amount of energy to literally boil into a vapor phase a thousand liters of water a day would take more than 25,000 watts of continuous input energy. That's an enormous amount. And most of the places in the world don't have access to that kind of energy or fuel to make it. <clears throat> but that's what the invention's all about. We said that if we vaporize that water in a closed system and then turn it back into the nice clean water, the way water that gets evaporated by the sun goes up into the clouds as vapor, it cools down up there, it turns back into a liquid and comes down as nice pure rain. Uh, if we could recover all the waste heat so that our heat exchangers keep reusing that same 25 kilowatts, but the new water coming in just keeps reusing that heat energy, we ought to be able to dramatically increase the efficiency. And we've increased that efficiency by about 40 times and we uh, can produce water uh, using no more power than a handheld hairdryer with this little appliance and still make almost a thousand liters of water a day. Wow, so is the only input electricity once you have the machine up and running or are there other consumables? There are no chemicals you're adding. What, what we're excited about with this machine is that it doesn't need chemicals, even if you have Girardia, no chlorine. It doesn't need osmosis membranes, even if you have salt. It doesn't need activated charcoal, even if you have, uh, again, hexvalent chrome or arsenic or chemical waste. We do it the way nature does. Trust me, if you go up into those clouds, you won't see osmosis machines. You won't see tablets of chlorine being dropped into clouds. You won't see charcoal filters. And in most of the places in the world, they don't have access to the infrastructure to get those things. You can't go to some small village somewhere and run down to the local 7-Eleven or the local Walmart to get all that stuff. You also don't have in those villages people with enough sophistication to be able to pre-test the water to know exactly which of those remediations you might need today. So we said we've got to make a simple box that requires no ongoing supply of disposables. And we also need one that's so simple to use that you don't need to be sophisticated about understanding water chemistry or biology or physiology uh, to make it work. We just want a simple box that you can put anywhere 
you can take one of its two hoses and stick it in anything that looks wet, and out of the other hose comes clean, safe water, so that next year, uh, maybe two million kids aren't going to die uh, due to waterborne pathogens, which is what's happened last year and the year before that and the year before that. But the number one source of chronic human disease on this planet is waterborne pathogens. And we believe this little machine, especially with the help of our partner, the largest global logistics footprint ever put together, Coca-Cola, who is excited to help us put these things all over the world where people need them. We, we believe between the slingshot technology and the partnership with Coca-Cola, we hope to very quickly start making a material difference in the number of people that have access to clean water. Wow, that's, that's tremendous. That is exciting to think about, and, and uh, certainly you deserve the recognition you've received for, uh, for that great work. I wonder, Dean, if we can talk about a few uh, extensions of the logic from your experience. Uh, it seems to me that you've lived your whole life in the, with the theory that technology can solve big human and big world problems, that, that technology isn't just about creating opportunity for inventors, but about really addressing and solving big problems. As I look out over the next 30 years, I'm trying to figure out what problems can we really address? And I wonder if you can address, you know, what can we do about poverty? What can we do about uh, clean water and other things besides clean water? What can we do for global warming with technology over the next 30 years? Well, I don't think it would be an overstatement. There's others that might disagree, but I don't think it would be an overstatement. <clears throat> to say that virtually every major global problem out there right now is going to need a breakthrough in technology to solve. <clears throat> As you pointed out, the environment. We are not going to be able to give 9 billion people, which will be the expected population in the next generation, we will not be able to give them all enough energy to live a, a happy, successful, prosperous life and enough clean water uh, without some major technical breakthroughs. We need to get better at creating energy from sources that have less environmental impact. We need to use better technologies to use less energy to accomplish the goals we want. You know, if you use uh, some of the uh, right now on the drawing board technologies to improve the efficiency of computing, Graphene, for instance, might be 10 to 100 times more power efficient than silicon-based computing. Uh, we can, obviously, you've seen LEDs are an order of magnitude more efficient than incandescent lighting. Uh, our transportation systems, our communication systems, our computing ought to get way more efficient <clears throat> due to technology. And we'll find better ways to create the energy to drive all these things again, through technical innovations. Healthcare. More people are going to demand more of a quality of life. Uh, and proteomics and genomics and better diagnostics, uh, again, are all technologies that are on the verge of dramatically changing the quality of life people can obtain and also do it at a sustainable cost to billions of people. Uh, you talked about poverty. 
the best way to get people out of poverty is to give them the capability to create more value than they consume. And in a modern world, the only way you're going to do that is through education and more particularly through STEM education. I mean, somebody now with access to a computer and the internet can be an entrepreneur. They can solve real problems, they can create real value and deliver that real value through the internet to people all over the world, giving themselves a sustainable way uh, to pull themselves out of poverty and become part of a, a successful global community. I think there are very, very few real issues this world has uh, that aren't amenable to being solved with breakthroughs in technology across a whole bunch of different industries. Well, that's uh, exactly what I hoped you would say, and that's exciting to think about all of the potential for that. There are roles for a variety of different people in bringing about the changes you talk about and advancing the technologies you'd like to see. One of the big players is government. And I'd be interested in your take in terms of what is the role of government? Is it simply to get out of the way or do they have a sponsorship responsibility and a stewardship responsibility in this process as well? Well, I don't think you can say they should get out of the way. A society with no government is chaos and anarchy. And a society with bad government is even worse than that. <clears throat> but a society with good government for instance, in a perfect world, I'd say government ought to make public education available to all kids so that no matter what social circumstance they were born into, they all have the equal opportunity, if they're willing to work at it, to become educated enough to be able to fairly compete with their peers around the world. I think government and the rule of law ought to guarantee kids the right to an adequate education. I think government also has to be a fair referee that allows all the different competitors with their different ideas to get those, those ideas out. And there's always a balance in that. I mean, when you think about how complex this is, you need a government that on the one hand has a justice department that makes sure that nobody has an unfair advantage. We don't like monopolies. On the other hand, down the road from the Justice Department, you have the Patent Office, which is another government agency that's sort of been put there to promise you for a limited time that you will have a monopoly on your own ideas as an incentive to create those <clears throat> ideas and deliver them to the public because even after you deliver them for some period of time, you'll be protected <clears throat> and able to get value from them. So the government has both the obligation to prevent abuse of power and monopoly and a way to encourage people to create and innovate by allowing them the exclusive rights to their ideas, again, for a limited time. But I think a well-run government is the basis on which innovation can flourish, uh, and we all ought to carefully monitor ours to make sure it's doing that well. Yeah, that's great. Now, similarly, another group of players in, in the world are philanthropists, and, 
I wonder if you think there is an, a role for philanthropy in technology development, perhaps in de-risking or in that fundamental research. I think it's critical that there are philanthropists in the world, just like it's critical that there are capitalists in the world. In many places and opportunities, they happen to be the same people. But capitalism that drives competition that allows the public to get the best when they compare two options and always raise the bar in each generation is a very valuable tool. We've seen places in the world where there is no capitalism and most of us don't think those places are moving nearly as uh, quickly as places that do have the right incentives. On the other hand, I'd be the first to admit capitalism isn't the answer to all human issues. I mean, educating your own kids takes a decade or two. It may not, at least at the current time, be a place where capitalism is clearly the way to go. That's why we like public education. And for some people, we need other public support. Uh, philanthropy fits in a lot of places where capitalism is probably inappropriate, in the same way that the government ought to be running the military, not some private organization. I think there are lots of places where philanthropy can be used and also be used as a catalyst to make, for instance, capitalism work better. A week or two ago, I was on a, a conference call with, in fact, Bill Gates, who is certainly a legendary capitalist and has become an even more legendary philanthropist. And most of the conversation was Bill basically saying to a bunch of very smart people, how can we use the philanthropic process to encourage capitalism to essentially fix our healthcare system? How can we encourage giant pharmaceutical companies and giant medical products companies and the medical community in general to focus their resources on the right kinds of goals so that instead of making ever more expensive solutions to problems uh, that will be available to the fewest number of people, because that may fit our capitalistic model, uh, how can we use maybe philanthropy to create the right incentives to leverage all of these great global organizations to instead create better solutions that could give better health care to billions of people more quickly? So capitalism philanthropy, government, business, they all have a place, they all need to work together, and when they do, we all win, and when they don't, we all lose. I think that's very insightful, very insightful. I appreciate that. That Now, as you think about uh, entrepreneurship, you've identified for yourself opportunities in the developing world. What do you see as being the kinds of opportunities that that young entrepreneurs ought to be pursuing if they want to have an impact on solving big global problems, many of which exist in the developing world. You hit one of my favorite subjects there. <clears throat> I think the most critical thing that the technical community of today should be doing is preparing the technical community of tomorrow. The number of problems globally, the magnitude of these problems globally, if anything, is increasing. The rate at which these problems can go out of hand, 
is accelerating. More than ever, this world is in a race between well-educated technology people and catastrophe. And I hope that catastrophe doesn't win that race. But in order to prevent that from happening, we can't continue to depend on a very small group of very sophisticated tech people, all of whom are getting older. We instead need that community to have a much louder voice among the few billion young people out there today and convince those young people that they have to develop the skill sets and they have to develop the confidence with all the incredibly powerful technical tools that are now available to them so that they can become the problem solvers of the future. They can make their own lives and hopefully the rest of our lives better for everybody. I think the technical community, certainly in the United States, deserves an A-plus for what they've delivered in terms of their day job. Technology has been driving our economy. It's been making healthcare better. It's been making communications better. It's doing great things. The tech community deserves an A-plus for their day job. I personally think the tech community deserves maybe a C, maybe a D, for having a voice in our culture. Too many kids grow up thinking all the exciting jobs and careers come from the world of sports and entertainment. They see all the happy, excited superstars and role models coming from the world of Hollywood or the NBA or the NFL. And in a free culture where you get what you celebrate, these kids, particularly women and minorities, are all being lured to what I think is a very unrealistic set of goals. They're probably not going to make a career in entertainment or sports, but if they don't start at an early age developing the same passion that they have for those things, for learning, for science, for math, they're going to get to an age where it's time to have a career and they won't have the tools. And I think the tech community needs to be much louder in, in interacting with the current generation of kids and showing them that science, technology, engineering, problem solving, inventing is every bit as fun, exciting, and rewarding as bouncing a ball or being on a stage. And if we don't do it, if we don't take that leadership to show these kids that we're proud of what we do, who's going to do it? And we can't complain about what, they're, what they grow up aspiring to do or what they grow up being good at or what they grow up not being good at if we haven't had a voice, if we haven't given them some direction. So now, you've I, been working on this. This is not just uh, an idea, a notion for a long time. What is it, 20 years or more, 25 years, you've been working with an organization called FIRST. Tell us about FIRST and what you're doing there. Well, based on what I just told you, namely, I think it is the, the opportunity or obligation of the tech community to be the voice of tech, to be the leaders that convince kids they ought to at least give it a try. 22 years ago, a little more than that, I founded a not-for-profit organization called FIRST. The name education isn't in there. FIRST, for inspiration and recognition of science and technology. I said, if we can form a not-for-profit that's very competitive, kids like sports, it's a great model. I've never seen kids running around cheering, I want to be second. So I said, we'll call this thing first, and we'll make it clear right in our name. We're about inspiring and recognizing science and technology. Once you can get kids passionate about it, leave education alone. Those teachers will do a great job if the kids show up at school as passionate to learn algebra as to bounce a ball. 
And 22 years ago, I said, the only way to get kids passionate about doing anything is to show them superstars that do it. I mean, the, the sports model works. Kids aren't willing to bounce a ball all day because they see other kids doing it. They're thinking of LeBron James. Kids in this country don't spend hours a day trying to get good at cricket because we don't have the NBA and the NFL at cricket. So I said, where, where are those superstars in the world of tech? Well, they're at all the big tech companies. They're at NASA. They're at government labs. How can we get people in those labs and those great companies in front of kids in a fun environment? Well, again, it's the sports model. Do it after school. Make it an aspirational, fun thing. You don't get quizzes and tests. You don't get grades. You show up. You bring the cheerleaders and the school bands. You have double elimination tournaments. You have fun. You celebrate technology. And you have as these coaches, these superstars of tech. In the first year, about 22 years ago, we had 20-some-odd companies that adopted 20-some-odd schools. And in that very, very similar to any other high school sporting event, in that six- or eight-week season, they all prepared by building little robots out of the junk we gave them, showed up for a single event at the end of the season, competed in a double, double elimination tournament, and we were done. Every year since then, it's grown. 20 teams, 40 teams, 100 teams, 200 teams. This year, this year, in 22 years of spectacular growth, we have 29,000 schools getting their kits next month, beginning of January. We have 3,500 corporate sponsors. We have 121,000 committed, signed up technology mentors, engineers, scientists, technicians working with the kids. We have 152 universities with teams. Last year, we gave out at the championship in a 76,000-seat arena under the arch in St. Louis. We handed out $16 million in scholarships to those 152 universities. This year, we'll be over 18 million. We'll have over 160 universities. We're in 80 countries now. And the tech community has galvanized around this idea because it's a win-win-win for everybody. The companies desperately need their next generation of scientists and engineers. The schools desperately want something to make these kids passionate to learn. The kids see this as fun. They see a roadmap now to real careers. There are millions of jobs out there for scientists and engineers. There aren't millions of jobs in the NBA. The parents love it. It's a win-win-win for everybody. And we've got the four presidents of the United States since we started this. Every one of them has brought our kids to the White House to get recognition, just the way they bring the winners of the World Series, the Super Bowl, and the Academy Awards. So it's, it's the intersection of government support on the school side, industry support of the kids, volunteers, mentors, parents, teachers. It's a love fest of technology. It's continuing to grow. But I would, I would ask that everybody that Forbes can reach, from the business community, from the education community, from the public sector, Get involved with FIRST in the local community. We're giving out kits, as I said, in January. They get their six or seven weeks, but by the end of February and then the five weeks in March, our March Madness, there will be 66 cities, little cities like New York, Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, <laughs> Houston, Orlando, Dallas. 66 cities over those five weekends will have their spectacular celebrations, their regional events in big field houses of major universities or civic centers, and then they get a few weeks off 
and the world championship will happen on April 25th and 6th, again, under the arch in St. Louis at the Edward Jones Arena. I invite you to be there. It's fantastically exciting. It's uplifting, and it gives you confidence that the world's going to be a better place due to what we're doing with the next generation of kids. Oh, that's inspiring. Well, Dean, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today. You've been extraordinarily generous with your time. I congratulate you again on the award from the Tech Museum. I thank you for your good work with uh, FIRST and appreciate again your time with us today. Thank you and, and uh, again, invite all your people to get involved with FIRST. I invite you and them to come to the regional events. Uh, it's easy to find them on the FIRST website and I invite you to come to the championship on April 25th and 6th. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Let's do some good. Bye-bye. This is Devin Thorpe. Thank you for joining me today for this podcast, which was recorded during a live broadcast of this interview via Google Hangouts on Air. A video recording of the interview is available at youtube.com slash devinthorpe. You can learn more about the work of the Your Mark on the World Center at yourmarkontheworld.com.